Bit rum to go home empty-handed after all that. Empty-handed? Not, Not exactly. Welcome to the Indiana Jones Universe, the podcast that explores the incredible adventures of the world's greatest globetrotting archaeologist, Indiana Jones. Each episode is a casual and somewhat humorous opinionated conversation with a slightly sophisticated analytical study of the expanded universe content from the Indiana Jones franchise. You can expect to find discussions about the adventures of young Indiana Jones, the further adventures of Indiana Jones comic books, the Staff of Kings and Emperor's Tomb video games, the Indiana Jones novels, the original soundtracks, and so much more. And welcome back uh, to another episode of the Indiana Jones Universe Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And today, we are finally going to review the fifth Indiana Jones movie, Dial of Destiny. The moment has finally arrived. Uh, This has been uh, 15 years in the making, so to speak. So much anticipation about this final installment of the Indiana Jones franchise. And now, we're going to talk about it on the podcast after it has been released. Um, originally we thought about doing an instant reaction podcast episode back over the summer, uh, when the film was in theaters, but we ultimately decided to wait a little bit until the film was released on home video on Disney Plus and Blu-ray, um, so that we could let it sink in, take some time to reflect on it, and then finally rewatch it to give you a full, in-depth, detailed review. And that is exactly what we are going to do today. We're going to talk about every little detail in this film from the beginning until the end. Uh, So hopefully all of you have been looking forward to this and are excited to hear our comments and uh, thoughts about this, what I think is a phenomenal film from James Mangold. And of course, joining me as always to talk about all things Indiana Jones is my great friend and colleague, Elijah. So excited to have you here today to talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. What a moment. I know, it's crazy. Finally, after another, you know, decade and a half, we have a new Indiana Jones movie. You know, it starts out with this ticking sound, which, you know, is very important, as we'll discover later. Um, And then you've got the logos going across the screen, and you expect it to fade into something, but no! And then there's Lucasfilm, and then that fades into a door hinge, and then they open the door hinge and Indy comes out. Um, Anyway, what do you think about that whole subversion i guess of you know expectations yeah you know i also was a little bit disappointed by the lack of the paramount fade and the fact that you know paramount was involved in i think i don't know in what regard they were involved in this film actually whether it was distribution or licensing or what but i almost feel like there was a reason that they didn't do the paramount fade right i mean their logo goes across the screen they were clearly you know part of this film so there had to be some logistical you know business oriented reason maybe why they didn't do the Paramount fade. 
Um, but even if they couldn't do the Paramount fade, why not be a little bit creative? Why not pay tribute to the fans and do something a little bit fun, like some sort of shape that at least would open the film, right? I mean, you talked about it right there. The first shot there is that opening door hinge. Why not make it, you know, I don't know, an aerial shot of, you know, a turret or a roof or something in a triangular shape that would almost kind of tease at, you know, what we've been so accustomed to over the years, right? Even in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, they even had that Paramount logo too, uh, with, of course, the uh, opening uh, shot there as well. So, you know, something similar of nature would have been nice here. But again, I think we have to accept the fact that this film is, you know, by a different director, we're moving in a different direction, and we're doing something different. But I do like what you said there about the ominous ticking sound. It gets faster and louder as it continues, and the opening shot of that German soldier unlocking a door, you know, brings us right into the environment of Germany in 1944. And, you know, this film already is so different from, you know, Raiders and Last Crusade, and even Temple of Doom, because it immediately starts in the middle of an ongoing story. There isn't any lengthy exposition, you know, this cinematic sort of uh, overview of the credits as they always do, you know, of course, it takes so long for us to finally see Indian as Boy Scout troops in Last Crusade. You know, there's that opening uh, kind of, you know, search and exploration of the jungle in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And here it just gets right into something that's already happening. Um, and so that I think is a little bit jarring for me, but I think it does, you know, start off really well in the fact that Indy is being held captive. He's taken through this burning village. Um, and of course, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about this throughout the entire episode, but the de-aged Indy in 1944 here, you know, which we were all kind of expecting. I mean, I don't know about you. I thought it was unbelievable what they were able to pull off here. I think it was really, really stunning. Of course, his face doesn't get revealed for, for a little while here. There's a couple other things we can talk about, but um, just the overall kind of grit and grim and, you know, the dark sky just adds to the overall tone of the scene. It, it feels like you're right back in Last Crusade, I thought. Yeah, I, I got the same impression, especially from, you know, that kind of era of indie inside a Nazi sort of stronghold in a castle really gave me that vibe especially with the fireplaces and stuff uh but i think you know the de-aging on indie here is the best i've ever seen uh, i know de-aging is sort of becoming very popular and is being used in lots of media but i haven't seen it done anywhere better than indie 5. however i have one very you know i hate to be nitpicky every once in a while there's like a slight moment that looks slightly off you know our brains are really good at you know, picking st up on stuff like that. Uh, and then his voice is a little bit older than I would expect. But other than that, it's fantastic. Oh, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it was it was extraordinary to see this. You know, it, I mean, it really feels like, it feels like indie. You know, it doesn't feel like something fake, uh, even though, of course, it's all digitally altered. And yeah, I remember, you know, kind of seeing some interviews and stuff. Um, it sounds like Harrison Ford actually was using his real voice, but actually kind of like trying to force it into a higher register, um, which is interesting because, you know, in Rogue One, for example, when they have Grand Moff Tarkin and Princess Leia, you know, both of those actors had passed away at that point. So it was clearly all archive footage they were using to create that voice and new lines of dialogue. So I'm just curious whether their technology they had access to is different or why maybe they couldn't have done that. Or perhaps Harrison Ford requested himself to actually be, you know, speaking all the parts. And of course, it's, you know, a full 20-minute prologue. It's not like, you know, a small scene that uh, like was in Rogue One, for example. Um, but speaking of the prologue, we had been talking about this really for a long time on this podcast. And especially when we were talking about the trailers. One of the things I had said for a long time is if you start this movie 
with a prologue, which is so important and integral to the way that Spielberg and Lucas have opened these films. And if you present the MacGuffin in a similar fashion to the way it's been presented in Raiders and in Last Crusade, and even in Temple of Doom, which does the same thing, this is going to be a really strong film. And they did that. They did that. And I'm really, really glad that James Mangold, who clearly seems to be a true indie fan, picked up on these things and noticed it. And that, hey, this is how these films have started in the past. This is how we should start it now, right? Because we know there's going to be a lot of apprehension from fans and the audience about how things are going to be different. But let's give that opening structure a very similar feel. And as we go through the prologue, we'll bring up some of the things that maybe remind us of those original films that I think they did really well. Um, but I also want to talk about the costumes and set design, which I thought were unbelievable in this opening setting. I think really, really well. I mean, even that opening shot, you know, from... Uh, Baz, as he's known, uh, is watching from the forest with that very concerned look, and then it immediately cuts to Indy falling over on the floor, and there's a phenomenal shot of, you know, Indy being dragged through this huge hall that is filled with antiquities, and there's phenomenal camera work here, the lighting, you know, with a lot of flashlights, you'll notice, they use throughout the film, that emphasize how dark and grim this era really is, right? But also emphasizing the sort of chaos and extremities of the Nazi regime. I just thought it was really, really phenomenal set design, really throughout, but specifically this prologue. It had a certain tone and feel to it, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I really enjoy it too. I think, you know, they went to a lot of effort in this movie to do things for real, um, which is, you know, kind of done less and less these days. And I think that really is refreshing, um, you know, for a new big blockbuster movie. Uh, and then I also feel like, you know, going back slightly on the de-aging thing, the important thing about it is A, it looks good, but B, it's not distracting. Totally. You know, oftentimes, if it's not done well enough, you're not paying attention to the story because you're just looking at the face. Um, and then this, you can really sort of, you know, you, you don't think about it. Uh, you just sort of believe it. And then, and then you're in the story and you're paying attention to what really matters, which is, of course, the plot. And then, of course, yeah, the set design is fantastic. Um, it really creates the feeling of Indiana Jones because, you know, as you said, he's like dragged through this room and they've got all the artifacts and stuff. Uh, and it, it really brings you back. Um, and so I like that a lot. And then, of course, you know, when Indy's taken captive, we hear we're introduced to sort of it's not the MacGuffin of the movie. It's almost like a fake one uh, that throws you off a bit. The Lance of Longinus, the sort of, you know, homage to oftentimes religious artifacts that were used in the prior films. And it's like, hey, is the movie going to go in this direction? Uh, and then, of course, it switches to the dial. Uh, but I think there's a lot of sort of interesting tributes to the other films in here. Oh, totally. And I really like what you said about the idea that de-aging a character can't be distracting. And I think it really goes back to that first shot when Indy sits down in front of the colonel and they take the bag off and they kind of really pause on his face for almost five seconds. And I think that was one of the best actual shots of a de-aged Indy in the whole film. So your point there about it not being distracting is if you start off with a shot that is so convincing and realistic, you're not going to be forced to think about it as the film continues. So it was really important and integral that that opening shot of Indy, the reveal of Indy, had to be so theatrical, right? Um, of course, it fit into the story that, of course, he was, you know, impersonating a German officer and held captive. But the fact that the bag is over his face is kind of a big deal. And I think it has to go back to that de-aging. 
Um, but what you were talking about, about the MacGuffins, I totally agree with you, right? And again, this goes back to really the very beginning of Raiders, right? In these prologues, there are always two MacGuffins. In Raiders, there's the Idol, and then there's the Ark. In Temple of Doom, it's the Eye of the Peacock, and then it's the uh, Stones. In Last Crusade, it's the Cross of Coronado, and then it's the Holy Grail. Crystal Skull doesn't do that. There's only a Crystal Skull, right? And in this film, you have the Lance of Longinus, and then you have the Antikythera. So they do it really, really well. And like you said, going back to something that is more historically kind of rooted in a religious artifact, I thought was brilliant. I really had no issues with the MacGuffins at all. And George Lucas has said himself that the MacGuffins are always the hardest part of the film. I don't know about you. I thought they nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. The Antikythera perfectly works with the idea of de-aging Indy and going through different eras and time periods. It just feels like it's so interconnected. And I really, really like that. Now, one other thing I wanted to mention, too, is the music. Uh, you'll notice the music starts right when Indy falls over, as we just talked about before, and goes through this hu huge hall that is filled with antiquities. But it's this new Nazi theme. It's not the Nazi theme that we remember from Last Crusade. It's different. And, you know, it, it, to me, this just kind of goes back to Jaws and the idea of simplicity, right? I mean, Jaws, it has that, you know, minor second, two-note ostinato, and, you know, it's like one of the best themes of all time. If you listen to this Nazi theme, which is really kind of uh, on full display in the, the track uh, on, the, on the album Prologue uh, to Dial of Destiny, um, you'll notice that it's really just chords. That's all it is. It's low brass, trombones, and tuba. It sounds like it's in 4-4, which, if that is the case, then the rhythm is simply a half note, a dotted quarter, and then an eighth note on the and of four. One of the simplest rhythmic figures ever. That's all it is. And it's just chords. And then, of course, they add some woodwinds and some French horns as well once it kind of uh, adds that climax. And in this particular version in the opening scene, they also add the tubular bells and the snare drum as well. And it's just so epic. And it just brings me back to Jaws and the idea that sometimes simplicity is the way to go. Because I think this really has that militaristic doer that perfectly characterizes the Nazis when they're introduced here. And uh, the Lance of Longinus is finally revealed as that sort of opening uh, MacGuffin in this prologue. Yeah, I mean, that sort of face reveal is just so important. Um, and I think it really parallels uh, Raiders really well. You know, in Raiders, you don't see Indy's face for a long time. Uh, and then, you know, the guy tries to shoot him, you know, he whips the gun from his hand, and then he steps out of the shadows, and you see his face for the first time with the John Williams track. That isn't, you know, it's not a triumphant theme either. Um, and at the same time, we have the same thing going on here, you know? You don't see Indy's face for a while, and then he sits down, and they pull the bag off of his head, and, you know, he turns his head and looks towards the camera as, you know, there's the music. And that, I think, is very similar. And then, of course, the lance... I think it's a really interesting sort of, you know, callback because, I, well, I guess at this point it almost feels like they're losing, um, but the Lance, of course, doesn't hold any power, even though, of course, the Nazis are always seeking power from artifacts. That's kind of why they're in it. But, of course, we learn the Antikythera is the one with the power. Right, and I think what you were saying there about Indy's quote-unquote big reveal, he's vulnerable here, right? He's not given that typical hero's introduction just like he is in Raiders, Right? It's the same thing, where you almost think he's the enemy, right? And so it's that idea of, you know, him kind of looking worn out and defeated here, whereas in 
Raiders, he really kind of has that ferocity when he comes out of the shadow after whipping Baranka's gun out of his hand, right? So there's no sort of triumphant victory here. Indy is kind of falling behind, right? He's referred to here as an American spy impersonating an officer, right? And that's when he has his first line of dialogue here, I like to be alone, right? And that, I think, actually is a pretty significant line to open the film. Because we realize in this entire movie that this is really an emotional story. And Indy actually feels like he's alone, right? That's why he decides at the very end that he wants to stay with Archimedes and not return to his own time, right? He says that to Helena. He's like, you know, she says, you know, you belong here, Indy, here. And he says, for who, right? He feels like he can't really move forward. He's stuck in the past. He's worried about all the relationships that he's lost. So that's why I think it's kind of significant that he says, I like to be alone as his first opening line. It, it really has kind of a double meaning, I think. And then one other thing I wanted to mention here, you know, we were kind of talking about whether maybe in a similar situation to what they did in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, when they talked about, you know, Pancho Villa kind of referencing Young Indy, you know, we were wondering maybe would they reference any expanded universe uh, adventures here. And I noticed three possible young indie references. The first one is right here when the Colonel says to the victor belongs the spoils. You might remember Indy actually says this in Tales of Innocence with Hemingway. And it's a pretty significant line in the actual episode. And I'm curious if maybe that was a reference. Any thoughts on that? I am not sure. I think, you know, it's a common enough phrase that it could be coincidental. Um, but I'm with you in that I'd like it not to be, you know. Now, moving on to sort of the next scene here, Indy, as he, we know, he's been captured, uh, and they try to hang him, so they tie him up and put him on a chair, and they're like, tell us your story or die. Uh, and what I like is that, you know, at this point, Indy's been dealing with the Nazis for like a decade, and he, you know, he really hates them, and even though he's like in a very vulnerable position, he still sort of makes fun of them. He's like, yeah, it all started with, you know, this village of little white, blue-eyed, blonde kids following their sweaty little dictator. And then he kicks the chair, and fortunately he had stalled enough to cut his hands free. Um, and then we get this crazy sequence, you know, it's kind of like a deus ex machina when the bomb falls through the, the roof and sort of interrupts everything. And then, of course, it's Indy swinging around on, on the rope, um, trying not to die. It's such a contrast, I think, to the rest of the film you know, Indy's a lot more active here. And I think maybe that's kind of necessary to sort of balance it out. And I really enjoy how, you know, he almost dies, then he like lands on a platform, then he's almost gonna die again. And that's, I think, very classic to, you know, Indy's sort of, you know, scraping it by, but just by a thread kind of luck. So I, I really enjoy that sequence. It's a great action piece. Yeah, and I think it kind of goes with, again, Indy has to be very young and youthful in this prologue to make it convincing and differentiate it from when he's actually going to be, uh, you know, his regular age in the film. So you have to kind of have this push and pull of the action and the suspense. And I think it's really well represented in this scene. You totally said it there. Um, you know, I also really like when the bomb falls through the ceiling there and through the floors. I like how it pulls the rug under it. It's such a cool effect, I think, watching it on screen to see the rug come down with it. And yeah, Indy barely survives. And, you know, one other thing, going back to the music here, you know, for, for true Indiana Jones fans, you probably noticed during this prologue and throughout the film as well, John Williams clearly had what I think was a phenomenal idea to really go back to some of the more underrated and subtle 
uh, music tracks from the original trilogy and also Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Uh, throughout this entire opening sequence, you heard a little bit of X Marks the Spot, Belly of the Steel Beast. Um, during this moment here, there's a little bit of the medallion, ants. You know, any general fan watching this probably would have not picked any of this up. But to us, who listen to the music all the time, and many of you listening, I'm sure, probably recognize these. And, you know, I think there's kind of this debate about whether, oh, is this just him kind of, you know, throwing, you know, music in there, just he doesn't really want to write anything new. I think it's very intentional. To, to have all this in the prologue specifically, again, it's, it's trying to bring us back to an era that we are familiar with, a, a style that we're familiar with. And it's also just fun. I mean, the way he weaves it into new material, it's not just he blatantly, you know, put Belly of the Steel Beast for seven minutes long. It's 20 seconds here. It's another 15 seconds there. Five seconds here with different instrumentation there. It's really clever. So I think it adds to the whole atmosphere and, and entire, I think, kind of climax of this prologue to kind of bring back some of those familiar themes to uh, maybe also, again, help the de-aging be more convincing, right? As everything we can do to make this feel like the Indiana Jones of old is definitely going to help in its cause to be to be very realistic. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about how this train chase gets started here. I thought this was a great idea to do this. It, it brings us back to the prologue of Last Crusade, of course, but kind of a 180-degree spin, right? This is, you know, Indy is a small child on a circus train running away from these grave robbers, and now it's much more of an epic kind of train sequence uh, that I really want to talk about. And, of course, we meet Voller uh, here, who originally presented the Lance of Longinus to uh, the Colonel. Uh, he's now known as Dr. Schmidt until he reveals his alias a little bit later. But yeah, let's talk about how things get started here. Yeah, and one more thing about the themes here. I think just, you know, a little tidbit is that um, when Indy is this age, they have more of an opportunity to really be loud, be boisterous about it. You know, he's youthful, and the score reflects that. Uh, and so you hear a lot more of, like, the themes you're used to hearing or, like, the Grand Raiders March, and you hear a lot of the same motifs and stuff throughout the film, um, but they're not as grand and in-your-face as they are in this prologue, and I think that speaks to sort of the age difference, the youth. You know, one of the shots I particularly like is when Indy actually boards the train, you hear his theme uh, as he's running on the, you know, the train car, and I think that's classic Indy, like you said, you know, throwback to Last Crusade, in that prologue as well. But of course, the difference is, you know, the stakes are a lot higher uh, here. Yeah, totally. I think that's a really great example of the indie theme. And the indie theme is actually used quite sparingly in this film. And we'll talk about that as we go on. Um, but before we even get to the train sequence, let's talk about this motorcycle chase. I mean, how great was this? First of all, um, you know, we, we talk about this a lot. And, you know, I think I'm not sure if we've necessarily coin this term, but we at least say it a lot, so we should explain what we mean. Classic indie. You know, to me, when I think of something that's classic indie, it's something that is so instantly recognizable as indie. You know it when you see it. It brings a certain feeling. It returns to something that only indie would do, that only Harrison Ford is known to do, versus, you know, some other typical action-adventure hero. It, it's separate from that genre. And this scene right here, when Indy knocks on the window and the Nazi soldier rolls it down and then punches him, <laughs> it's classic Indy, right? You just, you know it when you see it. That's something Indy would do. And to put in those little bits, and we see it a lot on the train sequence too, when he knocks on the soldier's helmet and just kicks him and swings down on the train car, right? There's a lot of things like that. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention there though, 
how do none of the other Nazi soldiers notice this? You'll notice that they're in this big, you know, kind of area here as everybody's loading all the antiquities onto the train. There's cars and motorcycles running everywhere, um, which, you know, again, I love the authenticity of the set design here. It feels like a real true Nazi camp right here as everything's kind of, you know, moving in the direction of, you know, where the train is going. And you'll even notice earlier, Voller, uh, you know, his glasses and leather jacket, first of all, are awesome, by the way. They really look, I think, kind of very militaristic and, and kind of uh, stern. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention is you'll notice that uh, when they're actually carrying the Lance of Longinus onto the train, you know, the Nazi soldiers say, you know, this is, you know, Hitler's, you know, special relic or prize. And you'll notice that Voller, there's one small shot when he looks down at his briefcase. Yeah. And that is a signal that he knows the power of the Antikythera. And one thing that's interesting, too, is that you'll notice earlier in the prologue, uh, when the colonel was taking a look at the actual Lance of Longinus, you'll notice that I think some sort of bomb, you know, lands somewhere else, and of course the building's shaking and rubble falls down, and, you know, um, you know, Voller is looking at it very closely. His hand is right above the actual uh, spear, and he notices the text there. And I think that's how he realizes it's a reproduction, it's a replica. So this referencing that, again, something is to come. This is not the real MacGuffin, it's a different one. But anyway, back to what we were talking about with Indy. You know, none of the other Nazi soldiers happen to notice this. He takes the wheel, you know, he's clearly making this up as he goes. And there's not a whole lot of dialogue here either. Um, and how about that nice camera work to show the reflection in the side mirror? They do this a couple of times too, even in the tuk-tuk chase later on. Um, but there's, again, amazing set design in this train. There's just such an authenticity to it. You know, Basil, you know, he says he disguises himself as a bird watcher. Um, and even the lights flicker in the train, too. Kind of this menacing and ominous portrayal of the villains. Um, but just as the colonel sets Indy's whip and fedora down, you'll notice there's a picture of Marion right there, too. Yeah. Yeah, that was with all of his belongings, which was great. Um, and here's another instance where you'll hear some of these um, other classic indie tracks from Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade. They play a little bit of the medallion here. Uh, there's a new version of On the Tank as well. And Indy finally notices the train and steers off course. And, you know, this is the that intense action that you really like from Indiana Jones. You know, these fantastic vehicles that are so accurate for 1944, right? He uses the helmet to push the pedal forward and then proceeds to get out of the car. He takes control of the motorcycle, punches several Nazis, and then there's that great camera work when that actually has a lot of depth, right? When we can clearly see the train in the distance when Indy drives the motorcycle down that hill. It's a beautiful shot, actually. And then, of course, like you said, right, when he gets on the train, there's the Indy theme, which really brings back that first sense of heroism, right? Indy's kind of falling behind here, but now this is his triumphant moment, so of course you're going to play the Indy theme as he's across the train. And then how about also, just had to mention this as being a, a film buff here, the, the Wilhelm scream with the soldier falling off the train right as Indy pulls him down. That was great. Yeah, I really like, you know, I noticed a lot of those details too. You see Marion's photo, and, you know, one thing about that is it means he's been carrying it around for years, um, which is just a great little, you know, inside look into his character and, you know, what he actually cares about, uh, which is really cool. And then, yeah, the Wilhelm scream as he boards the train, there's this really funny moment where, you know, he's in his uniform, he steps into the car and finds out there's a bunch of Nazis in there and they salute him. And then he walks around, he kind of like impersonates a, you know, terrible Nazi officer. And there's this really funny part where like he grabs one of the guy's mugs and he like looks at it huh, and then he pours it out. <laughs> <laughs> and just the theme right there, it, maybe it's subtle and maybe I'm, you know, making this up. But it kind of reminds me of No Ticket. Yeah. I, that was the impression I got from it. 
um, before, of course, they find out that he's got that bullet hole in his uniform, and then he's, like, off to the races trying to get away. And then we have this great scene, which, you know, is kind of reminiscent of a lot of the other sort of introductions of the power of the MacGuffin, um, where uh, Voller is explaining what the significance of the Antikythera is, you know, he won't be king, won't be dictator, he will be god. Um, and then I think it's, you know, important because we learn that, you know, Voller doesn't respect Hitler, but he respects, you know, his ideology. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I totally agree with you. A lot of things, I think, that are going on in this train sequence. First of all, you know, there's a technique that we're using here called parallel action. And this means that there's two simultaneous events going on in different locations at the same time. So that's really, I think, well done in this train sequence, right? Because you have Basil, Voller, and the Colonel, and then you have Indy kind of trotting along, trying to kind of catch up to everybody. So those are the two different actions that we're looking at. And so, first of all, we learn that this guy, Baz, <laughs> his real name is Basil Shaw, and he's a professor of archaeology at Oxford University, right? So, you know, this is another great side character for Indy, and I'm sure we'll talk about him later on once he has more of a featured role here. But, you know, of course, he's getting interrogated. He gets punched. Um, and so there's that kind of whole scene going on. But one thing I wanted to say also is you can still see the burning village in the background when Indy is on top of the train. Yeah. Which is really great, right? And then, then it leads into that shot where Indy knocks on the soldier's helmet and it kicks him. Uh, it really reminds me of um, the scene in Raiders when he's uh, he arrives at the Nazi hideout and there's the big uh, German U-boat. Uh, kind of reminds me of that scenario when he grabs the uniform and, you know, runs into Belloc and, you know, kind of we see his face turn, which is just great. Um, and, of course, you know, Basil does reference his daughter here, Helena, when he tells Colonel Weber that he has a daughter, right? And meanwhile, he's looking at Indy's journal with all the drawings of the Lance of Longinus. And, um, you know, we kind of see that, of course, this this brings us back to the Last Crusade and the Grail Diary. And, you know, they're clearly searching for this. They're trying to save history, as uh, Baz says. And then Indy, of course, decides to impersonate a German officer. And that scene you mentioned there, there's really great camera work. And, and I'll tell you why. Because Indy stands towards the car, looking afraid. He looks stunned, right? Because somebody's in his way but once they salute him that's when the music cue starts yeah and he fixes his posture and his uniform and now it's clear to us that he is in authority and he spots the lands lance of longinus and of course you know then we have the the scene that cuts to voler you know he's like i need to speak to the colonel right um and speaking of which the colonel has this scar on his face, which you kind of barely notice. It totally makes him more of an enemy. You know, shout out to Thomas Kretschmann there, who I thought did a great job um, as this, you know, high-ranking German officer. And uh, in the credits, I also noticed he was also like the German consultant. So he actually apparently knows German and was working on all the dialogue with them, which is great. Um, so that'll be interesting to talk about in a minute, too. Um, but one thing I'm confused about, maybe you can shed some light on this, Elijah, or maybe I just missed something. Indy smells the mug here, right? He pours it out. Hilarious, hilarious. But then he takes the lance. He takes the box. And that's when the soldiers notice the bullet on his uniform. And he turns around and proceeds to what, at least in my eyes, looked like the actual crate. He throws the crate at them. He proceeds to exit the train car, locks the door, but he still has the crate with him afterwards. What happened there in terms of that sort of disappointment? Because, of course, he grabs the crate, right, which has the lance inside of it. When the soldiers notice the bullet hole, he turns around and throws something at them, which I kind of pause there. It looks like he throws a crate at them. 
And then, of course, he locks the door, he goes to the next car, and he opens the crate, which has the lance in it, and he looks at it. So, what happened there? Do you, do you have any ideas of maybe, was I just missing something and this is just so obvious? Or, you know, it's, it looked like maybe there was a continuity error, is what I'm saying, and he threw the lance at him and then somehow has it when he comes back. Or what, did he grab something else? I, I don't know. I've seen the movie three times now, and I didn't notice that any of those times. Um, maybe because there were lots of crates and stuff in there, maybe it was another one of them. But I'm not certain. I'll have to go back and look. Um, but sort of speaking to the, you know, the colonel again, uh, Colonel Weber, and the scar on his face, um, and this is my own personal theory, but I think it's sort of implied when, you know, the colonel's like, have you met Hitler? I think maybe that scar is meant to be something that Hitler did to him when he disappointed him. Wow. That's, that's my theory. Wow, that's terrific, Elijah. I totally think you're onto something with this theory. And, and actually, one of the reasons I think you might be right about this is you'll notice when he says that line, have you ever met Hitler? That's the only time where he raises his voice, right? He's kind of a tame colonel, right? He's not like, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example. He, he doesn't remind me of Vogel from Last Crusade. He seems a little bit more tame and subtle. Um, he's not sort of too ferocious or authoritative, but he raises his voice at that point. Have you ever met Hitler? So that's, I think, a really great read into that. Maybe why he has this scar. Um, that's, that's terrific. Um, and again, going back to the parallel action, this is just really good filmmaking because when Indy realizes the Lance is a fake, so does Voller. And they say that line at the same time, right? It emphasizes that parallel action once more because they're finishing each other's sentences. Right? They're, they're realizing this at the same time. And again, I think it just goes back to this moment of you wonder when these two stories are going to collide. right? Because we don't actually have any visual evidence of where Voller is on the train, of where uh, Indy is on the train, and you wonder when they're going to meet. So it just adds to the suspense and overall kind of um, you know intrigue of having this sort of train chase here. And of course, you know this is when Baz overhears the conversation... And how about when Indy is astonished by all these antiquities? He's like, none of this stuff is fake. He's like, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> like, appalled by all the things that are on this train. He's like, 12th century, 9th century, 18th dynasty. Oh, you know, he's just like, <laughs> absolutely over the moon about all this stuff. Um, and, you know, going back to what you were saying as well, this is, I think, another great moment of filmmaking. And it kind of brings back, again, what we talked about in... I think the trailers, when we were talking about, like, the cinematic style of Douglas Slocum uh, from Raiders and Last Crusade, who was a cinematographer, they, they have a really great shot here. And I think it goes back to the lighting and the shadows and the angle of the camera. Right here, when they talk about another relic with real power, as it's kind of known by Voller, the Antikythera. You know, the, the, the Fuhrer is going to be furious about this, right? He's losing the war, right? He, he do, he's not going to get the relic that he wants, um, and by the way, there's a great theme for the Antikythera. Going back to Simplicity again by John Williams, just an ascending three-note motif. But anyway, you know, it goes back to this idea that the Antikythera is not supernatural, it's mathematics. And this is why I think Mangold nailed the choice for this MacGuffin, because the supernatural always has been kind of a, a question of whether... Fans are more interested in what we see in Temple of Doom and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, or are they more interested in what we see in Raiders and Last Crusade? And of course, there's always some supernatural to all of these MacGuffins, but this one is rooted more in history. And I think that's why I think it works so well, because again, it just goes back to what we're familiar with in Raiders and Last Crusade. And 
then it goes to that line you said, right? Whoever has the Antikythera will not be a king, the emperor, or the Fuhrer. And there's this amazing shadow in the window as Baz is looking at Voller. And he says, he will be God. And then the camera moves to this absolutely appalled and worried look from Baz because he knows what the power of the Antikythera can do. And I think that's great. So um, now let's move on to maybe some of the next scenes here with Indy walking through the sleeping car and all of this, you know, great sort of uh, moment of trickery and, and just comic relief. Yeah, and I liked what you said about um, Voller and Indy sort of finishing each other's sentences because I think that's also meant to show how they're kind of a match for each other and that they're the ones who are going to be sort of sparring throughout the movie. And this is kind of about their battle uh, between each other. Uh, but you really see that when he like, you know, they find out there's an intruder on the train. And so he's trying to blend in with the uniform and everything. He goes through the dining hall. He grabs himself some food, sits down while the officers go past. And then he gets back up again. And I think that's some, you know, really clever. Yet again, the way you explain our term classic indie. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Star Wars, too, in a way, when, like, they're on the Death Star and they're trying to, you know, blend in as they extract the princess. Um, it's, you know, the very much in that style of George Lucas um, infiltration. Uh, so I really like that. And then, you know, he finds his stuff in the next train car um, and he's like, what is this doing here? And then he sees Baz and he's like, I told you to stay in the woods. And then Baz is like, what sort of a man hides in the hedge while his friend is facing death? Um, and then they go into the next car. This is where they encounter each other. You know, we've been wondering when it's going to happen. And then we get a classic thing, indie punching Nazis. Great shot. Uh, you know, we haven't seen the whole hat in the face trick before, but I really like it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I love the fact that we're seeing something we've never seen before. And again, this also feels like our term classic indie, right? First of all, he, you know, Volor stands up immediately, says, who are you in German? And then Indy smirks, puts his fedora on Volor, and then smacks the hell out of him. I mean, it's great. And I think what's great about that is, again, it's sort of reminding you of Last Crusade. You're like, wait, this is weird. Why is Indy in the position of the character of Fedora putting his fedora on somebody else? And then you realize he's just kind of, you know, messing with him. Um, and then the next part, which is one of the first uh, shots that we saw in the trailer... To me, this is the first hero shot, because this is the first time when Indy actually, I believe, puts on his fedora in the entire movie, and he turns around right as Baz finds the Antikythera, Archimedes' dial. So all of that, I think, really, really is interesting in terms of the way that they find the Antikythera. And of course, Indy's just, you know, grab it, take it. You know, it's not like, oh my god, we found it. Now, another thing I wanted to mention as well is... Going back to the way the MacGuffins are used in the film. For example, you'll notice that when Indy, you know, walks through the sleeping car, he quickly runs as the Nazis are chasing him. He's like, too many Nazis, you know? That's a great quote, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, when, when that all happens, of course. Um, you'll notice that when finally that German officer comes in and says, a saboteur is aboard, you know, Indy's kind of running around. You'll notice that he uses the MacGuffin, the lance, to block the door. Isn't that interesting? And I'm curious if we could read into this a little bit more than just, oh, you know, it's just a fake piece of metal, so he's using it to block the door. Because you'll also notice later, the colonel uses the lance as a weapon. Ah. So what are we saying then about this MacGuffin? When, when something is deemed a fake, when something is not real, then it has no value, right? So what does that say necessarily about 
Indy as maybe a quote-unquote grave robber, as Helena calls him later in the film. What does that say about his use of antiquities, right? Now realizing that this has no value, it just has to have historical value, right? I mean, this is something that, you know, Nazi officers were carrying in a massive crate to present to Hitler as an ultimate relic. And now that it's a fake, it has no value. So I guess, you know, there could be something said there about the way that they decide to use the lance to block the door, right? And, um, you know, that happens, of course, after that great scene when Indy, you know, quickly sits down, you know, eats something after looking backwards. And, of course, you know, Voller and the Colonel are running across the train trying to find Indy. And you'll also hear a little bit of the jungle chase from Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Uh, John Williams throws that little track in there as well. Um, so that's really nice as well. And, yeah, I like the quote you mentioned there that Baz says, of course, as Indy finds his fedora and whip. Um, but now let's talk about this next part. When they're on top of the train, the soldiers are climbing on the side of the train trying to catch up. There's planes flying over. They run towards the gun. And Voller realizes that the Antikythera is gone. And there's a great quote here that I'm sure I know you like a lot, Elijah. When, you know, <laughs> Baz is like, we're running towards the gun? I can't do that. And then he's like, you want to stop for a little lie down? You know, <laughs> And so it's great uh, <laughs> that they have that little moment there of, of comic relief, um, which I think is a lot of fun. Yeah, I really like that quote, too. And then Baz is like, those are Nazis, you know, who are using the gun. And then, of course, yeah, they're being pursued. Um, but then, you know, one of the fighter planes, you know, takes out kind of the gun and it rotates around and just starts firing into the train because of the curve that the train is making around like this mountain or whatever. And it's a really clever sort of use of terrain um, and just, you know, yet again, Indy getting by on his luck, uh, which is very typical of his character here. Right. And, you know, the next shot I would like to talk about is amazing. It is this villainous, dark, grim shot when Indy and Baz are standing at one end of the train and we see a massive cloud of smoke at the other end of the train. And then all of a sudden, the colonel reveals himself with the lance in hand as a fight almost ensues. And then, Baz yells, tunnel! And of course, they all have to duck. And for any of you who are also James Bond fans, there's a very similar scene that happens in Skyfall, uh, which was the film with Daniel Craig. Phenomenal film, definitely check it out. The opening prologue features something very similar of a fight on top of a train and they have to duck in a tunnel. Almost eerily similar, actually. Um, but anyway, there's great stunts here. They kick the lance out of, you know, his hand while he, you know, simultaneously is saving Baz from falling off the train. There's these aggressive punches. Indy gets, you know, pushed against this rock rubble. I mean, oh my god, that looks so painful. And then, you know, again, the idea that the MacGuffin is being used as a weapon, right? Um, now he's using the lance as an actual spear, right? This was something that is considered a holy relic, and now it's being used to get rid of Indy, you know, who obviously has the Antikythera, so you're using one MacGuffin to try to retrieve the other, right? Um, so I'm curious what you thought about this whole little train sequence on top of the train, and also when they decide to use Indy's whip. Yeah, I really liked, you know, the use of the whip, because we really don't see it much in the rest of the movie, and so they use it more here. Um, classic, like he's about to be shot, and then whoosh, and the gun's gone, and that leads us into the part where, you know, he's pinned down... Uh, and then the colonel is trying to strangle him with his whip, um, and he's like, shoot him! And then he gets on top, and then BAM! Not me! Sorry! <laughs> uh, 
There's so many great quotes in this movie. That's one of the things I really enjoy about it. And then, of course, you know, when they finally, uh, when Baz actually shoots the Nazi, and then he's like, to the victor belong the spoils, and kicks him off. And then there's this great little moment. It's kind of a breather, and it feels like sort of a victory as they stand on the train and watch, you know, it's kind of like dawn, and, you know, the planes are going across, and it looks like sort of the Allies have sort of taken the territory. And they turn around, and they're being held up at gunpoint by Voller. He says, give me the dial, basically. And so he tosses him the bag, uh, and then all of a sudden there's the pipe, which I have no idea, A, how how Voller survives this, and B, how he doesn't have his own scar. I mean, if, you know, Indy gets a scar on his face from a whip that he takes with him the rest of his life, you'd think, you know, there'd be something. But anyway... Yeah, and you know, one thing I want to say about Voller there that I think is interesting in terms of the fact that he gets hit and somehow survives. We obviously know that the Indiana Jones films are not supposed to be 100% realistic. The one thing I do want to mention about that, though, is what I think bothers me a little bit is they never, ever talk about how he survived. They never even bring it up. And you're just supposed to forget about it and kind of assume that it never happened. They never actually confront it in the film. It never gets brought up again. You just assume that he survives with, like you said, no scar. Um, there's no visible damage to his face. I mean, it would have been one thing if, you know, his entire face, you know, looked like, you know, Anakin Skywalker or something. You know, <laughs> you know it would have been one thing if he kind of had this menacing look on his face. Um, but no, there's nothing. And my only thought is... Maybe he jumps down from the train or jumps. I don't know how he would have done this, but maybe he, it, it's, it's, it looks visually like he's getting hit, but he ducks right before or something. But even in the film, you know, it's clear that he gets thrown off the train, right? Um, when that pole smacks him. I mean, Indy, for crying out loud, barely survives it himself. So I'm just curious, you know, what happened there. But again, it's Indiana Jones. Everything doesn't need an explanation <laughs> as, as the way we'll put it. Um, but towards this ending, you know, when they jump into the river, first of all, two tracks to point out here that John Williams reuses from Raiders. First of all, a little bit of Ride to the Nazi Hideout, and then the classic flute rendition from Washington ending Raiders March. I mean, that just brings back the nostalgia, right? Indy grabs his fedora out of the water. The sun is slowly rising as they walk along the hill, right? We can see the train obviously clearly has destroyed the bridge. They're trying to get it all cleaned up. And of course, yeah, the quote you mentioned there today, as Indy pulls out the Antikythera out of his hand, he puts on his fedora as they walk off into the distance. The mountains are behind them. Indy puts his arm around Bez, and there's just chills down your spine in that moment, right? It's, it's a great emotional moment to hear that flute theme soaring through the air as they walk off into the sunset. I can't think of a better way to end the prologue, and it just... That was, to me, the moment where I really cracked a smile in the theaters. You know, just the anticipation, the excitement of the whole prologue. But then you finally sit back and you say, wow, that's a really great moment in an indie film. And, you know, overall, as we kind of transition here into the actual film, so to speak, you know, this prologue lasts about 21 minutes. I think it's perfect. I, I genuinely think it is absolutely phenomenal. And they hit the nail right on the head with this. It has everything you're looking for. Indy disguising and impersonating himself as a German officer. You have the action, you have the one-liners, you have the vehicles, you have the Nazi uniforms, which are so accurate and historically uh, kind of presented as well with all of the villains. 
Um, you have the introduction of Voller, and again, you talked about his connection with Indy there. You talk about the two MacGuffins, which are very important. The first one, which is sort of meaningless, the Lance of Longinus, and then the Antikythera. Then, of course, you have introducing a side character, Baz, who, of course, is going to be uh, somebody that is tied to the MacGuffin later on. Uh, you have the music, which I think is so expertly well done in terms of bringing back some of those old, you know, music cues from the original trilogy that remind us uh, of the uh, kind of nostalgia of Indiana Jones and what that musical landscape might sound like. And then, of course, you have the de-aged indie, which I think was, was brilliant. It was so risky. So risky. Imagine if this didn't go well. Imagine if it didn't look like indie, right? And this all goes back to what we actually talked about in the trailer uh, a little while ago is how do you bring the Nazis back as a villain, right? It's New York. It's 1969. How do you incorporate the Nazi regime? Well, what if we had a prologue with a de-aged indie? Well, okay, you only bring back the Nazis for the prologue. No, 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 no. We'll have the villain actually be somebody who wants to overtake the Fuhrer, but is still part of the Nazi regime later in the film. It was just so clever, and they did it so well, and I just have to give a hats off to Mangold for what I think was an expertly, really well done prologue. Yeah, I think sort of this prologue stands alone on its, you know, by itself as kind of a an Indiana Jones short film. Totally. And I think the whole movie is worth it, if only just for this. But of course, there's a lot of good stuff to come. But I, I really enjoyed it. It's got kind of everything you could ask for and more. Um, and it's just kind of a, it's like a roller coaster ride. Really, it's just, you know, action upon action upon action. And you have barely a moment to catch your breath, and then you're held up by gunpoint. Um, and so I really enjoyed it. It was fantastic. So did I. And let's transition now into the present day. New York, 1969 here. Indy's life clearly has changed in numerous ways. And now it is time to see how current events will force him to reflect on the past and on the future. And the opening shot of the present day, of course, is Indy's house. He's sleeping on a chair. Uh, totally different from his house in Raiders of the Lost Ark, by the way. Clearly, he's moved to New York um, and is no longer in uh, Connecticut. But, you know, a couple of, you know, little small details to point out. I'm sure most people notice this, but he does have pictures of Marion and his father uh, in his room. And he also has a picture of, uh, I think it is Christ walking with the Holy Grail. You know, the penitent man will pass, you know, right over his fireplace. He also has the picture of, um, you know, Christ on the cross with the Holy Grail as well. So nice to see a couple of those things kind of sprinkling their way in there amongst these uh, scattered belongings and, of course, hundreds of books. Not only that, you also have Mutt in uniform. There's a picture of him next to a folded flag. And there's a picture of Marion on his desk as well. So there's a lot going on here. Also, there's a picture of Indy and Sala. And there's a picture of his father, which is the one we saw in, um, in Crystal Skull on his desk when he was talking about, you know, we lost a lot of good people in the last few years. Yeah, I did not notice the Mutt one. That is terrific. A great, great uh, eye for that one. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of, you know, foreshadowing going on before, you know, in the movie, I guess, we're basically told that Mutt is dead. Now, there's a lot of really interesting things that we get to see in this, you know, first moment we're introduced to, you know, Indy, he's an old man now. Uh, first of all, he kind of feels like Carl from Up, in a way. Uh, you know, there's loud noises and stuff, and he's like, hey, be quiet! Uh, and he tells them to, you know, shut up, and then they, they find out it's Moon Day. And then, of course... You get to sort of see a lot of details about, you know, where his life is right now. You look at the, um, the paper and you find out 
Indy and Marion are divorced. Then he covers the photo with a magnet, uh, trying to sort of block her out of his mind. And it's the same photo that we saw on the train. Also, kind of parallel to that, you see Indy on a train. Again, it's the New York subway. And he really looks out of place now. Uh, you know, there's all these people dressed up for Moon Day and the parade that we're going to see in a moment. I think that's really well done. And then, of course, we get to see Indy in the classroom again. Uh, and this is, you know, kind of different from the rest of the ones. It's sort of, it's, I think it's meant to show you uh, where his character is at because, you know, in previous films, this has been sort of a point where he shines. And then here, no one is engaged in the class, and it's really disappointing to see uh, until, of course, Helena kind of starts chiming in. Yeah, I like what you said there about the fact that, you know, Hunter College might be kind of indicative of his life moving forward and then it's moving on, right? Because we're always so associated with that classroom in Barnett College um, or Marshall College, as it's known originally. Um, so, you know, that differentiation, you know, I think as we talked about the trailer episode, we were like, oh, man, well, they probably couldn't recreate that set. And I'm sure there's logistical things going into it. But for the story itself also, I think it does make sense that now he's teaching at Hunter College. Um, however, you know, one thing you mentioned there, I might have to slightly disagree. You know, the students being bored and asleep actually kind of always happens usually. I mean, of course, there's some people who are interested, but none of the students really speak ever, which is sort of interesting. And that's why I think Helena is such a stain in the image, so to speak, and really kind of jumps out at you because she's this random student in the back who, you know, people in the back usually are just kind of, you know, sleeping and not actually working. And of course, she has all these correct answers that Indy is looking for. Um, and I really like what you said about him riding the train. He looks so out of place. You know, it's, it's sort of strange to see him walking the streets of New York. Um, his house, you know, has great set design and so does New York too. It really looks, you know, kind of, uh, authentic to 1969. Um, and then of course, yeah, you know, it's strange to see him teaching in a different room, but I really like all of the drawings that he has on his projector. Those are really cool. I really like those a lot. And uh, you'll notice, actually, when Helena starts answering all those questions about Archimedes, which, of course, is totally foreshadowing, um, there's a short glimpse of Agent Mason in the classroom as well, just barely, if you notice. Um, and can I just say also, Harrison Ford is a great teacher. You know, I mean, he just he's really good at being a teacher. It feels so authentic and real. Um, of course, he's done it in the indie films, but he does kind of strike me as somebody who would be a teacher. Um, now one thing I did want to say, you know, there's this hilarious look from Helena to some other random student when she starts going off and answering all these questions. But why does she have a deck of cards in her hand? And why does she keep playing with them? Major realization. Okay, that makes sense. Here's, here's how I'll explain it. Uh, she's got the deck of cards because this is, I think, a symbol of what she's trying to do with Indy. She's trying to use him for her own ends. And there's a point when they're on the boat, when she makes him choose the card she wants him to choose... And it's, you know, a forced deck. Oh! A forced deck is the phrase they use when uh, the dial brings them to uh, Sicily. Yes! So everything is this metaphor of the forced deck and the cards are in Helena's hands. Excellent reading there. Wow, that's not at all what I was kind of thinking, but that is really, really great. Wow, the forced deck too. I think that reading into it, she holds all the cards. That's a really great way of putting it because... Yeah, you know, I mean, they do mention Blackjack a little bit earlier in the film. And I was thinking, oh, okay, maybe that's where the cards kind of come into it. Um, and of course, there's the card trick, but the forced deck thing of it. And she's shuffling them pretty aggressively, too. That is terrific, Elijah. Wow, really glad that you kind of read into that. Um, yeah, that's terrific. Now, let's talk a little bit about Moon Day. You know, Apollo 11, you know, clearly a distraction for this film. Um, and, and really the only kind of, I think, 
symbol that it holds is really for Voler, who apparently was supposedly, you know, the one who got the astronauts on the moon at, under this alias Dr. Schmidt, right? So, you know, of course, Agent Mason is working for the U.S. government and together, you know, he's, you know, going to meet the president and all this stuff. And of course, we realize he's working on his own. Um, but it's interesting kind of how this parade sequence, they, they keep teasing at it, right? I mean, it starts really early with, you know, those kids next to, um, you know, uh, Indy's apartment, who, of course, are playing that loud music in the morning. You know, turn on the TV, Dr. Jones, it's moon day, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and now, of course, we find that Indy is retiring. Um, but he doesn't really seem that appreciative of his colleagues. And we know this when he just nonchalantly gives the clock away to some random guy on the street, <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, but Helena, you know, who is very inquisitive about his life nearly 18 years later, right? Which you originally think, oh, you know, okay, she's, you know, his goddaughter. That's nice. You know, she's coming back to visit. You don't understand the force deck just yet, right? But again, that's what I think those deck of cards is alluding to. Great reading, Elijah. Wow, I'm really glad that you brought this up. Um, and yeah, so finally we have this whole kind of long extensive scene here when we learn a little bit about Helena and what she's doing. Now, one thing I wanted to say before we even get into that is, is the whole wombat thing. You know, th this is, I don't want to say I had a problem with it, but it feels like an inside joke that they never explain. You know, it feels like when you're in a group of friends and two of them have this inside joke and you're just awkwardly standing there. You know, like at, le at least for Junior, we know what it means, right? Like I'm sitting here in the whole movie waiting for Sala to go, what, what does it always mean? This, this wombat, you know, I'm just waiting for that to happen, right? Because they never explain it and it just seems weird. Like, why not explain what it means? Or even in a funny way or in a serious way, I just, why, why not call her Helena? Like, what's the reasoning behind it if you're not going to explain it to us? I don't really have a problem with it. I think, you know, you don't have to explain everything. It, you know, it'd be nice if it was, uh, if we figured out what it meant and where it came from. Uh, but I think it's just sort of meant to give them a sense of familiarity and personal connection. Um, so I don't really have a problem with it. Uh, but one of the things I do like about Helena is that she's sort of the only young person who can engage with Indy on the stuff that Indy knows. You know, he's sitting alone at the bar and then they're able to actually talk to each other in a way that's like, you know, peer to peer, you know, equal level kind of. Yeah, there's a special bond. That's that they have, even the fact that they've been separated for 18 years, you know that there's something special there, right? Right. Uh, even when she meets him right there, right? She says, well, in that case, what are we drinking? Right. Such a similar wit to Marion, I think, as well. Um, of course, she has different kind of motives and ethics, I think, as we'll learn a little bit later. But, you know, similar wit and kind of that spark about her that's similar. Now, let's move on to this whole discussion with Helena here. Um, Helena, of course, graduates with a degree in archaeology, right? She's working on a doctor research paper uh, that's about the Antikythera, right? So she's clearly following in the footsteps her father. I mean, we've seen this before, right? And Indy even says that. The apple didn't fall far, right? So again, you go back to what we were talking about earlier in the trailer episode. It's the next generation continuing their father's legacy, right? That's really what's going on here. Now, one thing that was interesting, too, that I want to talk about is Indy smirks when she says that her dad was obsessed with the dial, right? And so all of these memories are slowly coming back here. And there's a lot to break down, I think. But even Indy here says, you don't remember the last time I saw you, do you? And of course, we see this scene in full display later on in the film. But Indy is so skeptical that Hella wouldn't remember that night. And 
Clearly, this is her attempt to devise a plan to make him trust her to show her the dial so she can take it for herself, right? It's a very clever, right? I mean, it really does kind of feel like something that an Indiana Jones character would do, to have that kind of wit and cleverness about them to come up with this you know, elaborate plan. And that's why when Helena says, us, Indy's like, what do you mean, us? And she's like, well, you and me. So us, we're the only ones who know where the Antikythera is. And Indy kind of responds with dismay there, because... I don't think he aligns with what those motives are. Clearly, he doesn't want to become famous and become rich. That's not what he does. It's all for him. It belongs in a museum, which I want to talk about that later, too, because that actually comes up in a very interesting way. Um, but it's clear that Indy doesn't really want to associate himself with Helena. You know, he's, he's glad that his goddaughter has come back to him. It's 18 years later. But this isn't the way he wants to remember his daughter with the Antikythera, because there's so much kind of, like, concern and bad memories that are associated with this particular item that Indy doesn't really want to associate himself with Helena in this particular way, right? She kind of calls it a final triumph for Indy, back in the saddle, Indiana Jones. And so this is, I think, a really interesting conversation that I thought was kind of one of the kind of better parts of the movie, I thought. Yeah, I think there's a lot going on here that you don't see on the first viewing. Um... So what's happening is, I don't actually think she's researching her doctorate. She's just trying to get Indy to help her get the dial. And she's trying to do it by establishing that she's got the same motives as him, uh, or at least what she thinks. You know, she's like doing this academically. She's, you know, getting her doctorate, but she's pulling a con on Indy. And here's where she slips up. She thinks Indy is a grave robber, and he's not. And because of that, when she says, we'll get famous, we'll be rich and stuff, basically, that's where she loses him. You know, he was engaged up until that point. Now she's like, I don't think I'm selling it, am I? She says that because, you know, she's so much about the money, at least at this point. And so she thinks of everything as trying to make a profit. She wants the dial to sell it to make money. But actually, the reason she maybe doesn't know it yet, but is probably the actual thing, is she wants the dial because of its connection to her father. We're sort of seeing Last Crusade but from the perspective of Helena, you know, there's a father, there's a diary, there's an artifact that drove him insane that she's trying to get. It's very parallel to that movie, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, and I totally agree with you about the parallels to Last Crusade, because what's interesting about this scene is at the beginning, it sort of feels like Indy and Helena are aligned. Towards the middle of the film, it's clear they are very different people. And then towards the end, in a very sort of open-ended way, they seem to be kind of similar again. And Indy even confronts Helena about this when they're in the tomb, trying to find Archimedes' tomb. She's like, nobody would memorize seven journals of her father's notebooks, you know, just for money. Right? So that idea that secretly, even though she won't admit it, she's trying to honor her father and kind of follow in his footsteps, even though what she really wants is to sell the dial for money. Now, you mentioned Last Crusade there, and we have to talk about the last quote from this scene before we transition to the next scene. Indy says to Helena, why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? And there's a pause. And Helena says, wouldn't you? And Indy stops. He looks down quickly and realizes that Helena is trying to pursue the same thing that Indy was trying to pursue in Last Crusade with the Grail. It's the exact same scenario and Indy realizes he has been susceptible to the same thing that Helena is susceptible to. And that right there yeah. is phenomenal writing. I mean, I just think they really kind of dug into the depths 
of what they wanted to do with the character of Helena. She's not just this person who, you know, just wants money and just wants to go. There's something there. We don't know what it is yet. We're going to find it out later. There's something deeper. It's something emotional. On the surface, she might just be interested in Neantikythera for money. But there's something deeper there. And this is kind of where I'm thinking, maybe this is how Spielberg and Lucas were involved in this film. At the end credits, of course, they are acknowledged as executive producers. I'm curious in what stage they were involved. This seems like a scene where if I'm James Mangold, I would consult Spielberg and Lucas to talk about what are we going to do with Helena? Because, you know, of course, Lucas... He's, he's, he loves to kind of read into family situations and, um, you know, this type of character development and building. Um, and this seems like something he would have probably been involved with here. Yeah, I think it's really good that you're highlighting that detail because I think that's where Helena wins Indy over because uh, he realizes he did the same thing. And so that's why he takes her to the artifact room or the archive room and kind of a similar scene to Raiders. And there's a very similar sort of soundtrack in the background, kind of slow, kind of mysterious. And so that's sort of the power of the MacGuffin, what the thing is, how it works, what it's believed to do, uh, as he explains the dial. And he's like, your father thought it could find fissures in time. Totally, yeah, I think it's interesting. I didn't actually pick up on that particular comparison, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, the archives room, I think, amazing set design, phenomenal. Um, I, I tried to pause each frame to see if they hid any artifacts that we'd recognize in there, but I didn't find any, at least in, in my viewing. Um, and this is when Indy reveals that he kept the dial, right? And, you know, this is when all, we also get introduced to some of the villains. And I'd like to talk about these villains a little bit in, in greater detail. First of all, and we talked about this in the trailer and on Twitter as well, but for anyone who may have missed, uh, we do have a little bit of a cameo appearance here. The character Durkin... Uh, who is the guy with the crutches, uh, who's kind of, you know, uh, kind of chasing after uh, Hawk and, and Kleber for <laughs> a little bit of that scene there in New York. Um, he actually was in Young Indiana Jones. Uh, one of his first ever acting roles when he was a teenager was in Young Indiana Jones. He was Hemingway's friend Whoa. in Tales of Innocence, Northern Italy, 1917. You might remember there's a scene, like first five to ten minutes of Northern Italy, when Indy first meets Hemingway, right, he's looking for a ride to go to Julieta's house. And so he gets in this, um, gets in this, you know, like truck, pickup truck, um, for the American Red Cross. And the guy in the middle between Hemingway and Indy thinks Indy is Belgian and only speaks French. And the entire time they go on this long conversation and then he's like, allez, allez, ville, okay, Capitaine? And, you know, he's just kind of making fun of him the whole time. <laughs> and he's like, au revoir, you snail eater. And then Indy finally says, oh, and by the way, thanks for the ride. And the guy looks stunned. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that guy, Martin McDougal, uh, played Durkin in this film. Go check it out. Uh, I'll maybe repost that on Twitter when we post this episode. Uh, so great to see him back in here. I'd love to talk with him and, and you know, see maybe if he remembers anything about his time from, from young Indy there. Um, but going to the other villains here, Clayburn and Hawk, they're kind of buffoons, right? They're not real villains, in, in my particular opinion, and these are probably the only characters I was disappointed with. I, I actually liked a lot of the characters from this film. I thought they were really well done. But in the past, we've had such great kind of side henchmen. You know, Major Tote. We've had Dietrich in Raiders. Um, you have Vogel and Donovan. Uh, even Chatter Lal, you know, with kind of Molaram there. To me, the real villain here was Voller and only Voller. Um, even the colonel from the beginning, Thomas Kretschmann did a great job. But he didn't seem like a true villain to me. 
Um, and especially Claiborne Hawk, I was just disappointed with them entirely. And then Agent Mason, it, it's clear that she's working for the United States government, right? She clearly doesn't, you know, she's upset when Claiborne keeps shooting everybody, right? It's clear that they're not really going to work together well. And of course, they, they turn on her later on the plane ride um, after, you know, Voller fails to meet the president. So I don't know if maybe other people just kind of accepted the fact that they weren't good villains. I was disappointed in them just by the fact that they didn't really seem like true Indiana Jones characters and, and they were kind of just there. They didn't really contribute anything. I really would have liked more fleshed out, really well-built villains um, because this really, I think, was, was Voller's show for pretty much the entire film. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I think um, Hawk and Klaber were sort of weak, uh, but I did like Agent Mason throughout the movie. I think, you know, her motives were clear and she stuck to him and you know, tried her best and eventually got shot, which was too bad. But she's kind of representative of, like, the United States trying to get what they can out of these guys and then getting kind of stabbed in the back in the end. And I think what sort of symbolizes that is when they're going to try to find, um, you know, Indy's, you know, office and they're searching through it. And it's like the agents, like, don't send them. They're not agents, but they go anyway. They can't keep them under control. Uh, and then they end up making a mess and killing two teachers um, and this is when sort of things get serious for Indy. They try to chase him. He finds the, uh, the bodies. He tries to call the cops and then he's abducted and sort of both of these eras start from Indy being kind of abducted and he has to make a break for it and escape. And he does that, which you'll see in just a moment. Right. And I think one of the things that's interesting about this whole scene is, again, Indy seems to be falling behind in, in every facet of his life right now. And Immediately when he finally feels convinced after this conversation at the bar that Helena really is interested in learning about the Antikythera, he shows it to her, she has it in her hands, and she runs off at the first chance she gets. Right, and Indy originally thinks that Claiborne and Hawk and Mason, that they're, they're all working for Helena, right? And I think that's interesting that, you know, even Helena later says, family was never your strong suit. For Indy to originally suspect that Helena would have hired these other people to abduct him is, I think, kind of indicative of how much he really doesn't know Helena that well, right? Um, so, you know, Helena runs away from Indy. He's so confused. And when he pushes all the antiquities over, I was like, no, you can't do that, Indy. <laughs> oh, my God, that was terrible. Um, but, yeah, you know, when, when they appear, you know, Indy grabs all the journal notes, right, you know, um, to make sure that those don't get taken. And, you know, it's clear that Helena was lying and she remembers that entire conversation the entire night and, of course, was using Indy in this particular scene. And then, of course, you have this chase across the rooftops. Um, and, yeah, how about again? Yet again, Indy's getting trapped with a bag over his head, right? Um, and Helena escapes during the parade. Indy gets captured in this truck. Um, and, you know, finally, you know, Indy... When Indy talks to another officer during the parade, right, we finally see what the parade is going. There's been so much anticipation and foreshadowing to this big Moon Day parade. And, of course, it becomes the distraction for Indy to escape. You know, when he talks to this officer who almost radios another officer, then that officer gets punched, so Indy steals the horse, right? And Claybrook gets on the motorcycle. He starts chasing Indy. Um, you know, it, this kind of reminds me of the fun motorcycle chase with Mutt in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Right, they go down into New York, uh, there's the subway, exciting action, he crosses to the other side of the tracks, they get chased by another train, um, and it's just a hilarious scene when he appears in the station, gets on the train, everyone is stunned, right, and it just feels like a fun quality action scene, I didn't have much more to say to it, 
um, than just that. But I thought it was kind of fun, but probably not the best part of the movie. Yeah, and what I like about this is that, um, first of all, what's interesting is you've got this kind of cool piano theme, and then you've got this mix of sort of diegetic and non-diegetic music that really creates a sense of chaos because you've got, like, you know, the Navy guys blowing their horns, then they rush through, and then it's back to the theme, and then you've got the bagpipers and all these, you know, different crazy noises that really build that sense of, you know, what's going on here, it's, everything's hectic, Indy's trying to escape, and it's, it really creates a lot of tension. Yeah, and you know, one thing, again, going back to the villains that I just wanted to mention, you know, for those who don't know, the Hawk, who was played by Oliver Richters, this guy's uh, north of seven feet tall, and when they originally announced that he was going to be part of this film, my original reaction was, okay, he's going to be the next Pat Roach. For those who might not know, Pat Roach is a character who appeared in all three of the original trilogy films, and he's most famous for being known as the sort of brute that Indy has to fight near the flying wing, right? Uh, the guy who, you know, is shirtless that he punches. That's Pat Roach. That's who I thought Hawk was going to be. And frankly, I thought that would have been a better use of his height and, you know, kind of big physical size in the film rather than just being kind of this, you know, weak villain that works for Bowler, right? Like, you don't have to be a complex character to be memorable. All you need to have is something that's iconic and that's so well associated with a big action set piece or something that, um, you know, is tied to the MacGuffin. You know, whatever the case may be, had Hawk been more of a Pat Roach type of character and Indy has to fight this big brute, that to me would have been better. And maybe they never thought of that, but that was a little bit disappointing to me because I thought, you know, if you're going to cast somebody who's seven feet tall and who's giant... That's who he's going to be. Um, but clearly, maybe that's not what they were thinking. But anyway, let's go to this next small scene here. Um, and there's this interview recording for, I guess, a local newspaper, maybe the radio. And now that Voller, who now, of course, is still known as Dr. Schmidt, has conquered space, he says he's going to go to the next frontier. And we know, as an audience member, that that is going to be his kind of way of saying, I'm going to conquer time, time travel. And... If the president objects to a few creases, perhaps he should find himself another physicist. How great of a line was that, wasn't it? <laughs> and the guy's like, can I use that? And he's like, no. And then he whispers, yes. Um, and so that's a really great moment there, too, when Mason, you know, kind of is uh, kind of the one who's associated with the U.S. government, right, trying to get Voller to go meet with the president. And then, of course, Voller really kind of is going to be on his own trying to conquer time. So it's a nice little bit of foreshadowing there. Yeah, and you'll notice that the um, reporter gets really curious about what he says, and then the guy's like, let's get your suit pressed that's trying to be a distraction so that he doesn't, you know, inquire more about what he's trying to say there. And then he's like, you know, if he doesn't want wrinkles in my suit, he'll find a new physicist. And that, that's sort of foreshadowing that he's kind of leaving anyway, you know? Yeah, totally. We realize that Voller's really going to be on his own, right? And there's that particular moment in time when, of course... He looks at the file and recognizes Indy after he gets the phone call and quickly puts the phone down as Mason is speaking to him from, you know, the streets below. Um, now let's talk about the next scene with a great return of a great character. And you'll notice Indy is looking at this television set through a window. And we talked about this earlier with, with the idea of Mutt um, dying in this film. It's actually mentioned way before there's the big reveal to the audience. Um, and right here, if you listen very closely to the TV set, it says that the police are looking for a college professor, Dr. Henry Jones Jr., 
who recently lost his son and is going through a divorce. So before that point in time, you actually would have already known that Mutt was dead if you listened closely enough. Um, and anyway, somebody notices Indy is watching the TV and he's like, I, I found the guy, I found the guy. And then Sala comes in and punches him. He's like, sorry, I'm late, Indy. And, you know, Sala arrives and together they escape in a cab. And the classic duo is back together again. His accent, his voice, his style, the way he walks. Credit to John Rhys-Davies because this, to me, feels just like Raiders. And it feels like Sala was trying to bring Indy back to who maybe he was before he's kind of become so emotionally and physically lost from what's happened between him and Miriam. Yeah, I think Sala is sort of Indy's best friend here. Uh, and he's trying to support him in that way. And he's just such a lovable character, too. He brings sort of that fun and sense of adventure uh, that is so iconic to Indiana Jones. Uh, and, and it's just great to see him back again, even if it's for a short while. And not only that, there's a little bit of a nice sort of his history background uh, where we learn that Indy brought Sala to the United States back in the 50s. And so uh, you get to get a little bit of background about why is Sala in New York. And then, you know, Sala helps by taking Indy to the airport. He's like, have you thought about calling Marion? And Indy's like, she doesn't want to talk to me. Um, which I wonder, is that true? Or, you know, how do they rope, you know, Marion back in? But, you know, there's this great line that I guess John Rhys-Davies really wanted to say himself and made it happen. Uh, you know, we talked about it earlier, but... He's like, I can come with you. You know, I miss the desert. I miss the sea. I miss waking up every morning wondering what wonderful new adventure the day will bring. And yeah, you know, you talked about Sala here. What I think is interesting about this, and going back to what you were saying about Mirian too, if you look closely in that opening scene when Indy is in his kitchen making coffee, if you pause right on that paper, um, Mirian was the one who filed for divorce and Indy was the respondent. So that also brings up an interesting dynamic of what convinces Marion to come back. And we'll talk about this at the end of the film here when we get to the end of this podcast episode. But um, in any case, you know, I think Sala here, and we talked about this in the trailer, and I think this is clearly what his role was supposed to be. He's trying to bring Indy back to where he was. And Indy can't really move forward because he's just so stuck in the past. And he's kind of just struggling with himself, knowing what to do, right? Indy immediately says, this is not an adventure, Sala. Those days have come and gone. Well, what else has come and gone? Well, your connection with Marion, you've lost your son, but a lot of things have come and gone. So he's not really convinced that he wants to go on another adventure. He says that to Helena, right? Helena's like, maybe we could go there and find the Antikythera, right? And, you know, even though that was all a lie, Indy was still hesitant about doing that and working together with her. Indy still isn't convinced it's an adventure. What he's going to do is get the dial back. If he gets the dial back and returns to New York, he's not going to be framed for murder, right? That That's all this is to him. And what you said there, give him hell, Indiana Jones, which I think is one of the best lines in the film. It's so fun. John Rhys-Davies gets a lot of passion to it. Almost gets run over, right? And, you know, there's that small wave from Sala there. <laughs> um, I thought maybe that was just for comic relief, but who knows? Maybe they were implying a little bit more there. But now let's talk about that scene on the plane, which I think is brilliant. When Indy looks in the window and remembers the last time he saw Helena. Yeah, I think it's really well done. What we have going here is that, you know, first of all, this is kind of Crystal Skull era Indy. Uh, he's meeting with um, Baz, who honestly, I kind of get Gollum vibes from him. Like, or maybe <laughs> it's sort of Bilbo, I guess, when he's trying to, you know, let go of the ring and give it to Frodo. Uh, but he's like, promise me you'll destroy it. And he's like, yes, I promise, Baz. Um, and we see Helena... 
and she hears all of this and knows that it needs to be destroyed, kind of a callback to the fact that she did remember that night. Um, and what I really like about this scene is, A, she brings the hat back to Indy, but B, um, it's Indy having this flashback on the airplane, and then when we finish the flashback, we realize it was also Helena looking out her window, and so it's a really interesting cut that transitions us between the characters, and then we know they're both going to the same place. Yes, I think it's a really great example of good quality filmmaking. I mean, you said it right there. We know that they're going to the same place, right? Because ever since Helena got away in the parade, Agent Mason was chasing Indy. So we haven't seen Helena for a good 10 minutes or so in the film. And now we realize where's Helena going, right? She's got the dial in her bag. She's going to go sell it, right? I mean, this is going back to what Sala was saying earlier that, you know, she got arrested for selling these stolen artifacts at this Hotel Atlantique in uh, Tangier. And one thing I did want to mention here that I think is really, really important about this entire story arc with the dial is that you talked about here, you know, Baz kind of like Bilbo or Gollum, maybe, you know, he's just, his mind is warped. He's become obsessed with the dial. Indy is forcing him to open the door, right? They argue here, you know, proving it is what makes it science, right? You're terrifying your daughter, right? They just get in this massive argument. And Indy basically... It's like, oh, Baz, you know, just give the dial to me, right? It belongs in a museum. I should have never given it to you. He promises Baz that he's going to destroy it. And this brings two questions to my mind. And two kind of ethical questions, really. First of all, Indy says it belongs in a museum. But he keeps the dial for himself. It doesn't go in a museum. He keeps it for himself. There's no question that he was ever going to put it in a museum. He just was kept it for himself. And then he promised, promised Baz, one of his closest friends we can assume, that he would destroy it. And he doesn't keep that promise either. So what does that say about Indy? Because now we transition into the scene in Tangiers, where there's this whole kind of farcical exchange. Then you stole it. Then I stole it. Then I stole it. Yeah, it's called capitalism. Then there's another scene where... Helena accuses Indy of being a grave robber, and he says, Baz and I did important work. Then there's another scene during the tuk-tuk chase. Indy's like, I want what's mine. I just came here to get the dial. All of this said and done. Indy is not the same as he once was. And the reason is, he's no longer trying to preserve artifacts of the museum. He's retired. He's not a professor. He wants the dial back for himself. Sure, he doesn't want it to get into the wrong hands. He doesn't want it to get into Voller, but he doesn't even know Voller's involved yet. Right? This is Helena, his goddaughter, for crying out loud, and he wants the dial for himself. Sure, he might be worried about what could happen, but let's also remember that nobody knows where the Graphicos is yet. Nobody knows where the second half of the dial is yet. So I'm curious to get your take on this. How does this change our view and perception of Indy if he doesn't put the dial in a museum and just keeps it for himself and breaks his promise to Baz that he would destroy it? That's a good question. I'm not exactly sure... I think, you know, maybe some part of him is worried that maybe Baz is right, but he also doesn't want to destroy history. So he doesn't like put it in a museum where people who might know its power could try to get it. It's sort of hidden, but it's, you know, keep it secret, keep it safe. And so maybe that's what it is. And then, you know, I'm not exactly sure what his motivation is to go and get it. Uh, I mean, Helena's after it and he kind of knows she's, you know, got it because it's, you know, she's doing it for the wrong reasons. Um, and so he's trying to retrieve it. But yeah, you might be right that he's just, you know, in it for himself at this point. 
And then, of course, later on, you'll see he's like, you know, at least with the, the Graphicos, he's like, it belongs in a museum. Uh, and so that's kind of back to sort of Indy as himself. Totally. Yeah, that's a really great point. And another thing, too, is, you know, towards the end of that tuk-tuk chase scene, which we'll talk about, of course, um, you know, Indy and Helena are kind of forced to work together, right? They kind of need each other, um, but they're not aligned in what they want. Helena's been pretty obvious that she really just wants the dial to sell it to get money. And it's interesting that Indy's willing to go along with it, right? He almost is forced to, right? He doesn't want Helena to sell the dial. He doesn't want it to get into the wrong hands. So he needs to go with Helena because she has all the information from Baz's journals, right? And so it just kind of keeps building and building and building. And you're not sure what Indy is in this for, right? He knew it wasn't going to be an adventure because he didn't invite Sala to come with him. But what is he really trying to do with the dial? So that's kind of the question that gets raised. And then the ending finally reveals maybe what the dial kind of represents, almost like a holy grail type of story. Now let's talk a little bit about the seat at the Hotel Atlantique, which is awesome, by the way. Great set design, totally has the feel of Tangier um, during this time period as well. Indy puts his fedora on right when he arrives. Um, and we learned that, you know, Helena was originally sort of engaged with this guy named Rahim, who clearly I think his father owned the hotel at some point. Anyway, there's this annual kind of um, sort of uh, bidding auction of stolen antiquities, and Helena's there to sell the dial. And at this point, you really don't know, is she an ally or a villain? Can we trust her? That's the question that's being raised here. And then we get introduced to somebody else, Teddy, who I think is kind of the new short round, basically. Um, and right here, he's trying to learn how to fly, which great foreshadowing, right, to what he actually does later in the film. Meanwhile, he stops Indy from entering. And there's a great line here that I wanted to bring up. You know, he's like, private auction, old timer. No password, no entry. I don't make the rules. And then there's like some weird physical exchange and somehow Indy gets in there. I'm not sure what happens, but right as he gets in there, he bids 90 million and everybody stops to look right at him. Yeah, I think there's some interesting things going on here. First of all, when he enters, you see that a guy makes a phone call to Rahim uh, saying that Helena is there. And then he goes in, um, kind of brushes the kid aside. And that is really great foreshadowing about, you know, he hasn't flown, but he's gotten all this advice from, you know, these pilots who kind of stay at the hotel. And so he's got some knowledge. And then um, there's a great exchange where, you know, she calls him Jonesy, which I think might be a reference. I'm not certain, but it's, you know, kind of a fun callback. And then Voller enters, and there's some really great lines in this scene right here. Are you still a Nazi? And Helena, you know, she's, why is she dealing with the Nazis? Does she know what they're trying to do? Because we find out she had been in contact, but that his bid was too low. And he's like, it's my property. And then there's another great line there, which is, you should have stayed in New York. And then Indy says, you should have stayed out of Poland. And that was such a great burn right there. I loved it. Yeah. And, you know, this is where things kind of get a little bit interesting. Because you're wondering, first of all, how did Voller know that Helena was going to go after the dial? Right? Like... Voller and Indy meet, and I'm curious whether Voller was actually telling the truth or he was lying. He's like, have we met? Right, he doesn't recognize Indy at all. But then there was that scene earlier when he looks at his sort of like mugshot, I guess, and kind of recognizes him and puts the phone down immediately. So, you know, I'm curious whether Voller actually recognizes Indy or if he was telling the truth there. But anyway, what I'm trying to get to is, you know, you wonder sort of how all these three people come together because they all want different things and they're all kind of really trying to pursue the dial at different times. 
right? Indeed has nothing to do with the dial, right? At, at least at the beginning of the film. And Helena is trying to retrieve it, but how did Voller know that Helena was going to retrieve it, right? Maybe she contacted Voller and told him that she was going to get the dial and sell it to him, but then his asking price was too low, hence why he shows up at the bidding auction. So a little bit of interesting kind of behind-the-scenes thing here that we don't really know a whole lot about. But you mentioned Jonesy there. I think, and I think what you're referring to here is this being a reference to Mystery of the Blues, because at least from my knowledge, at least what I can remember now, the only person who ever calls him Jonesy is uh, Sidney Bechet in Mystery of the Blues, and Mac, actually, in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull calls him Jonesy as well. Right. Um, this could just be, you know, kind of a fun nickname that Indy hates, or is it a reference to young Indy? Who knows? The, the, the thing that's a little bit interesting to me is that when he says Jonesy, or when Helena says Jonesy to him, he says it again and kind of like turns his head a little bit as if he's remembering something. So I don't know if that's a reference to Crystal Skull, to Mystery of the Blues, or none of the above. Who knows? Um, but anyway, you know, Helena is really feisty here. I mean, she and Indy argue with some really witty dialogue here. And then uh, Indy finally, you know, grabs the dial as this big fight ensues. And of course, really, I think another one of the only times Indy uses the whip in the film besides the prologue where he whips everyone, and then they all hold him at gunpoint, which is, of course, that final scene in the trailer, which was great. Um, and then, finally, Teddy grabs hold of the dial, and you'll actually notice that, you know, for film score enthusiasts here, there is clearly a reference to John Williams' score from Tintin, and uh, on our Twitter page, we've been talking about some of the great art um, by this artist on Instagram who's been doing some uh, kind of I guess, sketches of what it would be like if Indy and Tintin coexisted. It's really cool. Check it out. I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but if you go on our Twitter page, we've been reposting some of that stuff. Um, anyway, I think this was, again, goes back to what happened during the parade scene. This feels like one of those fun, thrilling fight sequences. It's not as action-packed or serious or stern, right? I mean, Teddy runs into Voller and he's like, thank you. And he snatches the dial and goes in the elevator and then tips his fedora to Indy. See you in the past. Dr. Jones, right? So it's all this kind of like fun, you know, kind of exciting, you know, maybe even farcical chase. It doesn't seem as, you know, serious or kind of really, um, there's not a whole lot of stakes, I think, in this one. Um, whereas, you know, everyone's just trying to chase each other in that regard. Yeah, and that's kind of one of my favorite sequences, you know, not only because it has that clear reference to Tintin, uh, and, you know, Tintin and Indiana Jones are sort of my two favorite globetrotting adventure genres, uh, and it'd be awesome to have some sort of crossover. Um, but I think that the scene is, you know, done, you know, really in kind of the same way as like some of the other scenes in Tintin, you know, they're trying to go after the scrolls and you're kind of watching the scroll as it passes from one character to the next. You have the same thing going on with the dial. You kind of, you follow the dial into Indy's bag, you know, into someone else's hands and it just keeps going in that same way. And so it's a really kind of a fun scene. And then we get this great chase with the tuk-tuks uh, in Tangiers, and then he's like, move over. And this is a lot like, you know, short round, you know, he pulls up and he's here to save them in like the random vehicle. It's this kid. Yeah, totally. And then I think, you know, this whole part with Rahim is kind of silly um, because it's like, this is your new man. Like they're trying to be this whole mob thing, but they don't take it very seriously. And so it's just kind of, you know, ma making fun of them in this whole chase. Now, with this chase here, there's kind of a lot, you know, going on. You've got, you know, Indy's theme actually shows up, which is really cool. Um, and I really liked some moments where he's like, come on, come on. That feels like, you know, classically like Indy uh, when he's trying to, you know, chase them again when they left him behind. Um, but I do think that this whole chase sequence 
kind of goes a little long. There's lots of great moments. There's lots of great action pieces, you know, like when the cart gets hit, it swings around, it hits the guy on the motorcycle. Fantastic. Um, but there's just some sort of, there's like a moment in the middle where Indy and Helen are like side by side and they're just kind of talking. And I'm like, you know, this is an action piece. Is that part necessary? Who knows? Uh, they, maybe they could have explained those points in another moment. But overall, I think it's well done. That's interesting. You know, I really didn't have that thought while watching it. But now that you mention it, it is a fairly long sequence. And, you know, the thing with Raheem it is really irrelevant to the story, right? I mean, it's clearly like the subplot that they were trying to add. My theory about this is two things. First of all, it kind of gives more backstory on Helena and sort of like what she was doing for these 18 years when Indy wasn't in her life, right? She clearly was getting into some bad things. She had this ex-husband or fiancé, Raheem, who, of course... You know, his father owned the Hotel Atlantique, so that's why she's selling artifacts, right? So, like, that's probably the first reason Raheem's involved. The second reason, I think, is just to actually make the tuk-tuk chase more chaotic, right? You have Raheem and, I guess, all of his, I don't know, um, all of his assistants or henchmen or whatever you want to call them, um, kind of chasing after Helena, right? And had you gotten rid of that entire scene when they get held up by the police and then Raheem shows up, and if you just got rid of them, maybe the tuk-tuk chase would have worked a little bit better. You know, just Voler... Helena and Indy, which, again, it's a three-way chase as it is. It's not Helena and Indy working together, right? You notice that there's that scene when they finally, you know, are grabbing the uh, sort of, like, satchel and tying it around, you know, Voller's neck to try to grab uh, the dial. You know, they all want what's theirs. It, they're so sort of, like, self-motivated in that moment. You know, Indy's like, I want my dial back. You know, he's just so emphatic to get this dial back that it's already a three-way chase. You don't need Raheem involved, at least in my opinion. And then, of course, you got Teddy, who's there. He's sort of loyal to Helena, but we don't really know why he's there yet. He's, like, sure around, like you said. Just kind of shows up. Um, and, you know, it's a great quote that I wanted to mention, you know, when Indy, you know, kind of confronts Helena about Raheem. She's like, what exactly do you owe this guy? And she's like, oh, just some bail money and a lifetime of happiness. <laughs> it's just great. Um, it's kind of a fun moment there uh, and wit from Helena. But, you know, this great, exciting chase kind of reminds me of Raiders a little bit, right? Kind of the, the basket game sequence, but obviously way more, you know, extravagant and sort of kind of um, taken to a whole nother level here. Um, and, you know, this is when, you know, Helena says, I don't need morality lessons from an aging grave robber, right? And it goes back to that whole thing. Um, and this tuk-tuk, I mean, gosh, has some serious speed. Uh, there's some great camera work, by the way, when they go down the bumpy stairwell, the facial reactions there, <laughs> they just go soaring down. That stairwell is great. Um, and finally, the third possible young Indy reference, Indy says, I know Tangier when he's talking to Teddy. Obviously, we know there was an episode in Tangier, um, that second half of My First Adventure, Tangier 1908 or 1909, I can't remember the exact date. But anyway, Indy's been there before, um, you know. Is it a young Indy reference again? It's just like so 50-50 flip of the coin here. Um, you know, again, if George Lucas was an executive producer and, you know, was had influence over the script, maybe that was him trying to make sure that young Indy was still canonized or whatever. But um, anyway, you'll also notice some music from the warehouse scene in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull during the sequence. Escape from Venice from Last Crusade also plays a couple of times, uh, which is great, right? And, you know, I think the biggest thing that I noticed here is Helena is super arrogant. Indy quickly jumps into another tuk-tuk after, you know, everybody's chasing each other, almost, right? When Helena tries to choke Voldemort and get the dial back. Um, and this is when, you know, finally Helena says, you know, family was never your strong suit. And, you know, 
Teddy finally takes Indy's father's watch and he's, uh, you know, he's furious at this point, right? After the tuk-tuk breaks down and, you know, he's furious that Teddy stole the watch. So there's just a lot going on in terms of the relationship between this trio. And we realize that they're kind of, they're in this together, whether they want to be or not. And of course, Voller gets stopped by the police. And this is what the military extraction uh, this is what Agent Mason refers to on the plane when he's like, you didn't meet the president, you shot three American civilians at a huge televised parade, and you went to Morocco and needed military extraction. Like, she's furious that she didn't meet with the president. So that's actually what that was um, at that point when Voller and everybody else got stopped there. But um, yeah, I mean, let's kind of move on now to this this next part on the plane with Agent Mason and a little bit of betrayal here. What did you think about this and maybe anything else you had to say about the Tuk Tuk chase? Well, first of all, there was one more point that I think is kind of important about Rahim, and it's that um, he's like, how much did you sell the ring for? And she's like, it didn't go for as much as I, you know, was trying to get for it. And then later, she tells Indy when they're on the boat, you're still wearing the ring. That's the difference between these two sort of relationships. Indy is still invested in it. She's gone. She's done with, you know, Rahim. That's a really great point. Wow. Kudos to you, Elijah. Phenomenal there. And then another thing about the tuk-tuks, uh, you know, when they break down and they're having their conversation, the Wright brothers and stuff, you know, this is definitely talking about, like, Dad's notebook gets memorized. This is, you know, the last crusade thing. But, you know, Helena doesn't have her dad anymore, and Indy's her godfather. And so this whole, in the same way that, you know, in the same way that last crusade is sort of Indy rediscovering his connection with his father, this is sort of Helena discovering her connection with Indy. Uh, and they kind of build the relationship uh you know, throughout their struggles in the movie. And in the end, she is, you know, for the first bit, she doesn't really care about him. But by the end, you know, she's like, we can't just leave him. And so that's sort of what she gets out of this whole adventure. Yeah, totally. And I think that's a really, really great point about the rings as well. And I think the whole point that there is some parallels to Last Crusade here in terms of this father-daughter or father-son relationship. Um, now, talking a little bit about what happens right before that on the plane... I just wanted to mention, you know, when Agent Mason accuses Voller of, of kind of ruining his own reputation here, you know, there's this great scene when everybody ambushes Mason and the pilots on the plane. And I just want to say, I think it's really ironic and also intentional that Kleber is the one who kills her. Yeah. Because she was on him throughout the entire movie. You know, you trigger happy cracker. This is all your fault. Right. And he is the one who point blank just shoots her. Right? Because originally they just, you know, kind of put some pepper spray in her eyes. And then she, like, tries to punch Voller and Kleber just whips out his gun and just shoots her point blank. I thought that was phenomenal. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Kleber in the entire film. That little moment I thought was great. A little bit of revenge there. Um, and he finally reveals, you know, his name is Jürgen Voller. Uh, different than Magnus Voller. Um, but, of course, I think they are both tired of their reunions with Indy in, in more <laughs> ways than one. Um, actually, something I did notice the first time around, but only noticed on the rewatch here, is when the helicopter flies over the tuk-tuk, Teddy notices it. And that's actually Voller's helicopter, which I didn't notice the first time around. And, of course, Teddy thinks Indy is from Indiana. And when he's talking about the Wright brothers, he's like, oh, I thought maybe you went to school with them. That was just great. <laughs> You know, Indy is furious at this point. And, you know, Helena says she made a copy of Seven Notebooks. You know, just memorize the important parts, right? And so this is when they decide that, you know, they're going to find the Graficos, which apparently Basil actually knew the location of. And Indy didn't know this at all. Um, so they decide to go to Casablanca and then Athens. And, yeah, I mean, th these family relationships kind of force them to work together 
right? Um, which I think is really, really interesting. But uh, now we have this map travel sequence, which those are awesome, right? I'm so glad they brought those back. Um, you had to. I mean, it was sort of kind of an obligatory thing if you were going to make uh, an Indiana Jones film. You have to have the map travel sequences in there. I do think they put kind of a modern spin on it. It's nostalgic interpretation of the iconic image, but, you know, the music is amazing. The train and plane images are phenomenal. And then Indy, Helena, and Teddy arrive at a boat dock to meet Rinaldo. Let's talk about this guy. I'm a big fan of him. Yeah, I think sort of this whole boat sequence is kind of the strongest part of the old indie section of the movie. Um, you know, first of all, it gives you a moment to kind of catch your breath uh, from all the action. You know, throughout this whole point, we've had, you know, Indy in New York trying to escape. We've had Indy in Tangiers trying to escape. And so when they finally step on the boat, you know, Indy meets Ronaldo and they have this like, you know, happy reunion. I mean, we haven't met him before, but, you know, Indy has. And so there's just a little bit of, you know, quiet you've got you know the farewell to tarwathi which is what the character playing the concertina is playing on the boat and then they get to have this sort of you know moment where they're playing cards and you know call back to the forced deck this is when she does her card trick and this is clearly the moment where you know it's symbolizing that she is making indy do what she wants him to do by picking the card and by helping her get the dial and then also this part of the whole movie i think it carries some of the most emotional weight you know, you talk about, you know, Indy having, you know, this reunion with his friend who then gets murdered, which is significant for him because, you know, this movie is kind of a lighthearted adventure. But then at the same time, when they're escaping, he's like, my friend was just murdered. And then Helena kind of realizes that and she's like, oh, and that, you know, kind of grounds her there a bit. You know, like, you know, all these things are happening. It's real. It matters. Uh, but also we learn about all the things that Indy has lost. He's lost Marion. He's lost Mutt. And that, you know, really brings him down to where he is here. And he's kind of acknowledging that emotional weight he's carrying. And I think that kind of gives the movie its strength because, you know, ultimately this is a very emotional film, uh, but it has all these sort of action pieces within it, uh, you know, trying to bring back the spirit of Indy while acknowledging that he's older and that he's had a lot happen to him and how he's dealing with that and what that means for him in terms of how alone he feels. So I think that's really important here. And also, you know, like I said before, this is where Aunt Helena says, you're still wearing the ring. That's because Indy still cares about Marion, even if he doesn't want to acknowledge it, just the way that um, Helena still cares about her father. And that's maybe the real reason she's going after the dial, even though she thinks it's about the money. Uh, and she thinks that's what is motivating her. You know, she says she's in it for all the wrong reasons still uh, to Teddy a little bit later. Very, very true. Yeah. And I think this entire scene, I mean, you mentioned it at the beginning here. I think is one of the better sequences in the entire film, this, this whole boat scene. And let's start off with Ronaldo here, who I think is such a classic indie character. You know, at first I was kind of like, you know, oh, maybe it would have been fun to bring Captain Katanga from Raiders back. Of course, he's always a sailor as well. Um, but again, he's, I think Antonio Banderas did a phenomenal job in this film, an excellent performance. You know, I wasn't really sure what to expect from him when he was originally announced as part of the cast, but He's probably the best side character in the entire film, at least in my opinion. He's just, he's reliable, he's trustworthy, he has, he's an expert in some skill, in this case it's diving, and he's just kind of that old friend that Indy has, right? Indy's been all over the world, he has friends in different places, and that's what I think goes back to what we were saying pretty much this whole episode, that classic Indy feeling. He, to me, feels like a classic Indy character. He just embodies all those things that we look for, and then his performance... I thought was phenomenal. The way he shouts Indy from aboard the boat is so fun. 
you know, this is the first time that Indy actually smiles. He has a really great smile and a chuckle. Um, and meanwhile, uh, you know, they have that again, that scene when, you know, uh, they're, they're talking about the force deck, you know, the cards, the card trick. And Ronaldo's charisma is just hilarious. He's extremely likable. Uh, it's really nice to be on the water at night on this, you know, boat. It's just really, really fun. A little comic relief there as well. Um, and then, of course, you know, they talked a little bit earlier about the Graficos. And, you know, there was this kind of idea that the divers in 1902 weren't looking for the second half of the dial when they went down to look at that old shipwreck. They were looking for the Graficos. And um, Baz kind of figured that out, and that's why they were talking about the maps and the journals when they're on board Ronaldo's ship. Um, but then let's talk about this kind of big sequence, which you were alluding to, and this kind of big reveal of what happened to Mutt and Marion. And I think there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, Indy and Helena talk about the dial's power, right? And this is when Indy kind of goes back to that quote, you know, I don't believe in magic, but a few times in my life I've seen things, things I can't explain, right? That whole quote. Um... He says that, and Helena, again, reinforces the only thing I believe in really is cash. And so again, there's this disconnect between Helena and Indy. But then all of a sudden, Helena asks Indy what he would do if he could go back in time, right? Because they kind of talk about now that, you know, maybe the dial actually can't, you know, break fissures in time. Maybe you actually can time travel. You know, Indy's kind of starting to believe it a little bit, just like Baz did and just like Helena does. So they're finally all kind of on the same page here. And this is when finally Indy kind of reveals what's been troubling him throughout the entire movie. I'd stop my son from enlisting. First of all, that is an amazing idea for the, from the writers for so many reasons. First of all, you're clearly acknowledging that the majority of Indiana Jones fans weren't really a fan of Mutt, right? But you could have just taken the easy route and not included him in the movie, right? As we kind of said earlier, not everything needs an explanation. You didn't just, you could have just left Mutt out of the movie right? Even though he was in Crystal Skull. And they did. But now what they did was really smart because it ties in to Marion in a totally different way than it did before, right? And now we realize why Marion actually got divorced to Indy. Because when Mutt enlists in the war to piss Indy off and he dies, Marion is, you know, found no end to her grief, as he says. And Indy feels helpless to be able to console her. So he is so stuck in the past, he can't move forward because he just feels like he's lost everything. And then, of course, there's an amazing use of Marion's theme right here. Kudos to John Williams for that, of course. And then you mentioned Helena notices that Indy is still wearing the ring, so he's not willing to give up on Marion yet. But the real reason I have to give credit to the writers of this film for this scene, and I'm not sure if this was intentional at all, but it sure as hell is great for any fans of the expanded universe like us. The reason that I'm happy that they decided to kill Mutt off, for him to actually be dead, is because it's such a great parallel to what Indy and his father go through in Young Indy. In Young Indy, Indy goes to enlist in the Great War without his father's permission, right? Uh, he goes to fight the Great War, right? He doesn't have his father's permission, and there's this disconnect. Meanwhile, Henry Jones Sr., Indy's father, has emotionally lost his son and has physically lost his wife. In this film, Indy has physically lost his son and emotionally lost his wife. Wow. And the end of the film, 
of Dial of Destiny is exactly what happens at the end of Winds of Change in Princeton, 1919, where they embrace. Indy and his father finally hug when Indy earlier in the episode says that the only time he remembers being hugged by his father was in Travels with Father, when they were in Greece and Athens together at the monastery. And so you have a similar situation where there is this reunion, they reunite, but it's still left a little bit open-ended, just as it is here in Dial of Destiny, right? It doesn't end like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull where Indy and Marion get remarried. No, they just have a small moment that's reminiscent of what happens in Raiders, and they finally are reunited in this moment where they finally come together instead of being broken apart. But it takes a long time for that to actually happen, right? So that's why I really, really like what they did with Mutt here. Again, you could have just said, let's leave Mutt out of the movie and not even mention him. Or, sure as hell, you could have included Mutt in the movie. But what they did here was smart. Because by actually having Mutt enlist in the war and die in battle, it allows you to create a much more emotional story to bring back Marion and even create this parallel to something that Indy has experienced before. I thought it was brilliant. That is a fantastic point. I didn't even see that, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that really gives a lot more depth to the movie now. I really like that. Yeah, I just think there's something to be said about what this scene means for the movie and specifically what Mutt means for Indy and Marion. He's not even in the film, but he's such a significant presence and what happened between him and Indy affects Indy and Marion and we see that at the end of the film so I just think it's a, it's an absolutely phenomenal scene um I think there's a multiple different ways you can read this scene also I don't think that's like the only answer I'm sure there's other interpretations of of this you know idea that Indy lost his son in the war and that he gets divorced from Marion you know what does that mean for his life for him who he is I'm sure there's other readings of it as well but in any case you know this emotional story I think is is just so really, really kind of rich and deep that it that carries itself to the end of the film. Well, I think that's a good place to end part one of our Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny uh, review. Uh, of course, with this final uh, very significant and emotional scene, uh, we're going to stop there uh, just because we want to make sure that uh, we give this film uh, the dedication and attention that it deserves. And of course, it's two hours and 37 minutes and this episode is already long enough as it is, so we will be back next month with part two of our Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny review. Uh, hopefully uh, you have enjoyed this episode. If this is your first time listening, please consider subscribing to our podcast, leave a review, tell other people what you think about the show. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us from our website, www.theindianajonesuniverse.com, and make sure to follow us over on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now uh, to join our community of indie fans and listeners, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So uh, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Once again, I'm Elijah. And I'm Will. And until next time. So long, Dr. Jones. Jones.